Welcome to Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies. This is the 14th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will discuss feminist debates around sex work. It will center sex workers' voices. Let's get started. I was born to flex, yes. diamonds on my neck. I like boarding jets, I like more than sex. But nothing in this world that I like more than checks. Money. All I really want to see is the money. I don't really need to be any the money. All I back need is the money. The song for today is Cardi B's Money. Cardi B is an American rapper, songwriter, and actress. She worked as a stripper prior to becoming a famous rapper. She has spoken repeatedly about being proud of her time as a stripper, remarking in interviews, noting, I'm glad for this chapter in my life. She is proud of her history as a sex worker and has said that becoming a stripper was was positive for her life in many ways. In the last two lectures, we talked about class and labor. The last lecture had a particular focus on the division of housework, which has remained an important feminist discussion point for decades. Today, we will be speaking primarily about the topic of sex work. In 1978, Carol Lee, a sex worker and activist based in San Francisco, known as the Scarlet Harlot, coined the term sex work as it is now used. She looked to combat the anti-porn movement by coining a term that reflected the labor and economic implications of the work. The term came into popular use in the 1980s. Coyote, which is the call off your old tired ethics, and other similar groups formed in the 1970s and 80s to push for women's sexual freedom and sex workers' rights. A rift formed within feminism that continues today, with some arguing for the abolishment of sex work and others working for acceptance and rights for sex workers. Carol Lee is credited with coining the term sex worker at a Women Against Violence and Pornography and Media conference in the late 1970s. The terminology used at the conference for the sex industry was the sex use industry. She was bothered by the phrasing because it objectified sex workers and trivialized the agency they had when organizing their labor. She suggested that the panel be renamed sex work industry and began to use the term in her one-woman plays before the first published use of sex worker appeared in a 1984 Associated Press Newswire. She explains in a later essay named Inventing Sex Work that, and I quote, I invented sex work, not the activity of quote, of course, the term. This invention was motivated by my desire to reconcile my feminist goals with the reality of my life and the lives of the women I knew. I want to create an atmosphere of tolerance within and outside of the women's movement for women working in the sex industry. Lee is an activist, artist, and performer and has made such films as Yes Means Yes, No Means No, and Outlaw Poverty, Not Prostitutes. She's called for the decriminalization of prostitution and has been involved in AIDS activism since the early 1980s and is a safe sex advocate. Her recent work and archives are available at sexworkermedialibrary.org. I've also included a link in the transcript to a video of Carol Lee talking about these topics. I want to be very clear. Sex work is not the same thing as sex trafficking. Sex work is a form of work that a person decides to engage in by choice. Sex trafficking is a form of human trafficking in which a person is forced to have sex through threat, abduction, or other means of coercion. 
Sex work is consensual and sex trafficking is not. Types of sex work include, but are not limited to, straight prostitution, indoor prostitution, such as escort services, brothel work, massage parlor-related prostitution, bar or casino prostitution, phone sex operation, exotic dancing, stripping, lap dancing, webcam modeling, pornographic film performing, and nude peep show performing. It can also include sugar babying. We'll be talking about sex work as a form of labor today. Carol Lee created the term sex work during a period that is known as the feminist sex wars. So the feminist sex wars is a broad categorization about debates between feminists about topics related to sexuality and sex work, primarily in the 1970s and 1980s. Although some of these debates are still ongoing, there were anti-porn feminists and sex-positive feminist groups. Part of these debates surrounded disagreements regarding sexuality, including pornography, erotica, prostitution, lesbian sexual practices, the role of transgender women in their lesbian community, sadomasochism, and other sexual issues. Anti-porn feminists thought that porn led to women's oppression and violence against women. Many of these anti-porn feminists likened porn to rape. Prominent anti-porn feminists include Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. Andrea Dworkin argued in her book, Pornography, Men Possessing Women, that the theme of pornography is male dominance, and as a result, it is intrinsically harmful to women and their well-being. Dworkin believed that pornography is not only damaging in its production, but also in its consumption, since the viewer will mentally internalize pornography's misogynistic portrayal of women. Radical feminist legal scholar Catherine McKinnon characterized pornography as a form of sex discrimination and sought to give women the right to seek damages under civil rights law when they could prove that they had been harmed. She worked with Dworkin to create anti-pornography ordinances. They were hired in 1983, for example, by the Minneapolis city government to draft an anti-pornography civil rights ordinance as an amendment to the Minneapolis city human rights ordinance. On the other side, sex-positive feminists critique the anti-porn movement. Gail Rubin, whose work we discussed in the lecture on sexuality in her article, Thinking Sex, Notes for a Radical Theory on the Politics of Sexuality. In that article, she characterizes sex liberation as a feminist goal and denounces the idea that anti-pornography feminists speak collectively for all feminism. To quote Jacqueline Compte's Decriminalization of Sex Work, Feminist Discourses in Light of Research from 2014, whose work you read for today, she writes, Sex-positive feminists see the position of anti-pornography and anti-sex work feminists as being essentialist. It attributes a perverse sexuality to men on the grounds of their presumably having a sexuality focused on the genitals, whereas women's sexuality would be the moral model to follow, as theirs would be focused on feelings and love. Such a position, on the one hand, maintains the feeling of guilt women have had towards their sexual desires and acts that are labeled as deviant, while on the other hand, it stops women from exploring their own sexuality as they are not allowed to express any alternate sexuality, e.g. sexuality without emotional attachment, lesbianism, bondage, domination, sadomasochism, and sex work without being stigmatized. Thus, sex work has been criminalized and stigmatized with the aim of controlling women's sexuality, not with the aim of protecting women against moral alienation. Consequently, sex-positive feminists pose sex work as an opportunity for sexual exploration and personal growth regarding one's own sexual taboos and prejudices. So, 
Porn performers are sex workers, but they're not the only kinds of sex workers whose work was debated in these discussions. The anti-porn feminists tended to also be against prostitution. They claimed it is forced on women who have no alternatives. There are also arguments made about how selling sex is selling something too personal to be sold despite the, for the intimacy of many kinds of labor that are socially accepted to be bought and sold. Furthermore, sex-positive feminists argued that this position ignored the agency of women who chose sex work, being prostitution that's not inherently based on the exploitation of women. So, as Carol Lee notes, starting quote, the prostitutes' rights movement of the early 1970s evolved directly from the women's movement. But she adds, the women's movement in the U.S. has always been ambivalent about prostitutes, end quote. I would say that feminist movements have sometimes been actually downright hostile. It is important to know that these debates did not look at the fact that there are men who are sex workers and non-binary and gender non-conforming people who are sex workers. As the Comte piece that we read for today notes, research on male sex workers examines power dynamics, representations of masculinity, self-perception, and the socioeconomic conditions that lead to sex work and influence safe sex practices. Usually, feminist approaches do not take the experiences of male sex workers into account. However, taking these experiences into consideration we give a broader perspective to the understanding of sex work, as the experiences of male sex workers show many aspects similar to those of female sex workers, end quote. Compte is speaking about gen the gender, bi gender in binary terms, and this finding can be expanded for non-binary folks as well. Another aspect of this discussion is violence against sex workers. The anti-porn and anti-prostitution group would say that all sex work is inherently violent. The sex worker positive camp says that engaging in sex work is consensual. However, due to the marginalization of sex workers in society, and in some cases, the criminalization of their labor, when violent acts such as rape or assault happen to sex workers, they're sometimes not able to access medical or legal resources due to the fear of being arrested. So in part, coming out of the sex words, we see a division of different proposed solutions regarding the legal status of sex workers, the paternalistic language being used of how to protect sex workers, and different ideas of how to improve the working conditions of sex, work sex workers. We see a variety of different models, abolition, legalization, decriminalization, and the Swedish model. I'll be quoting at length from the Compte piece, which outlines the three main ideological stances that exist regarding sex work issues, abolitionism, sex-positive feminism, and decriminalization. They look at a large body of the research done around sex work and note that research on sex workers is most often done through feminist theory and focuses on gender relationships and on the experience of oppression and or agency. Such studies examine the motivations to do sex work, the experience of being objectified, the stigma related to sex work, and finally, the impact of this kind of work on self-esteem, on couple relationships, and on social relationships. Through their studies, they conclude that the ideal is decriminalization based on decades of research results. So to reiterate, the Comte piece shows that by looking at all the research that had been done at the time of writing, decriminalization was the ideal. Right now, I'm going to talk about the different tactics they evaluated. So the abolitionist stance is against all forms of sex work regulation. As Comte writes, it considers sex workers to be victims who should not be criminalized but help to quit prostitution, and it militates for a total disappearance of sex work including prostitution, pornography, erotic massage, and erotic dance. Neo-abolitionists take it one step further and ask for the criminalization 
of clients. The criminalization of clients is the Swedish model, also known as the Nordic model. About this model, Compte writes, regarding the Swedish model, as for the transferring criminalization from sex workers to clients, as demanded by the neo-abolitionists, the Swedish experience demonstrates that far from diminishing violence towards sex workers, this makes them more vulnerable, as this law forces women to hide in order to reassure their clients. This isolates women even more and pre- prevents them from receiving help when necessary. Client criminalization diminishes their numbers on the street, which causes a price decrease, brings about fierce competition, and encourages clients to insist on sexual acts without condom use. On their side, rushed by the fear of being spotted and thus losing the transaction, sex workers do not have the time to size up the prospective client, while those who dare to do so, despite the law, are more often aggressive. So, Canada enacted the Swedish or Nordic model in 2014 as part of the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. Sex workers' rights advocates have been pushing against this ever since. The new legislation, the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, or just Bill C-36, was the conservative government's response to the Supreme Court's ruling in the Bedford case. In that landmark decision, brought down in 2013, Canada's highest court tossed out several criminal code provisions related to the sale of sex on the grounds they violated sex workers' rights to security under the Charter, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The court suspended that ruling for 12 months, however, giving the federal government time to create a new set of, in some ways even more restrictive laws, around sex work. Bill C-36, for the first time in Canada, explicitly outlawed the buying, not the selling, of sex. It also gave police new powers to prosecute those who advertise sex work and those who exploit or otherwise make money off sex workers in all but a few limited cases. The explicit goal of the legislation, outlined in a Justice Department position paper, was to reduce the demand for prostitution by discouraging entry into it, deterring participation in it, and ultimately abolishing it to the greatest extent possible. So the Canadian Alliance of Sex Work Law Reform is calling on the Liberal Party to start that review process on Bill C-36 and act on decriminalization. The group also wants to see provincial and territorial employment laws regulate the sex industry as a form of labor. The organization, which is made up of sex workers' rights groups from across the country, also say sex workers need to be part of legal reform. They're the ones who know how best protect their rights, the Alliance argues. These efforts are supported often by local sex workers' organizations. Stella, l'ami de mamie, is a social justice and community-based organization established and run by and for sex workers in Montreal. According to their website, the main goals of Stella are to counteract violence done to sex workers and the different factors that get them to be infected with HIV and STIs that threaten their physical integrity, to fight discrimination, isolation, and the stigmatization lived by the sex workers, to promote the decriminalization of different kinds of sex work, to provide support and information to sex workers so that they may live in safety and with dignity, to sensitize and educate the public about sex work and the realities faced by sex workers, to encourage and support the participation of sex workers to the community and in making making of collective actions, and to favor the creation of exchange platforms on the sex on sex work at the municipal, provincial, 
national, and international levels. Stella favors empowerment and solidarity by and among sex workers, since the organization's worldview is that all sex workers internationally are committed to the idea that each of them has a place in society and human rights worth defending. So decriminalization is another model, one that is usually advocated for by sex workers rather than legalization. Compte writes, starting quote, Feminists specifically campaigning for the decriminalization of sex work usually do it through one of the many sex workers' rights organizations that exist around the world. They concentrate their argumentation on the very negative effects that criminalization and stigmatization have on the life and working conditions of sex workers and conclude that decriminalization is necessary in order to improve these conditions. These feminists differ from sex-positive feminists in that they in that the former do not necessarily consider sex work as being a source of sexual exploration. Rather, they see it as legitimate work one may choose, and they militate for its social recognition as such. The social and legal non-recognition of sex work as a job like all other jobs also hinders the attainment of working conditions that respect the legal minimum norms. Sex workers have no real negotiating power over their working conditions, as they cannot file a complaint with the legal authorities so that employers imposing abusive working conditions would have to respect these norms. Many sex workers do not trust that legalization will protect them and that laws will create unsafe or poor working conditions. Compte to this writes, Consequently, sex workers' associations tend to ask for the complete decriminalization of all activities related to sex work. Unlike the legalization carried out in some countries such and places such as in Nevada of the United States, where sex work is legal in state brothels but remains illegal everywhere else, decriminalization means that everything related to adult sex work is deleted from the criminal code. Situations of violence, coercion, exploitation, and human trafficking are already the object of laws and do not need laws specific to sex work, end quote. This brings us to the other reading for today. Priscilla Alexander's 1998 piece, Sex Work and Health, A Question of Safety in the Workplace. Since this piece is from 1998, it uses the acronym STD, sexually transmitted diseases, rather than STI, sexually transmitted infections, which we use today. Alexander looks at sex work as a form of labor that has risks, lots of kind of labor has risks, and their strategies for mitigating these occupational hazards. Construction workers have to wear helmets, chemists have to wear goggles, and medical professionals have to wear masks. She says that while the risks of the trade for sex work just take for granted just are taken for granted in popular rhetoric regarding STIs and violence, this doesn't have to be the case. Police officers stealing contraception and using the possession of condoms against sex workers as grounds for arrest discourages safer sex practices. She looks at factors such as repetitive stress injury, lack of legal protection, lack of access to necessary medicine, as all as avoidable occupational hazards. She advocates for a sex worker organization for occupational safety. She writes that, starting quote, The first occupational safety and health regulations of sex work businesses are being developed in Australia and the Netherlands, looking at such issues as hours of work, paid sick leave and vacation, pensions, provisions of condoms, showers, and ergonomically designed beds and massage tables. She looks at harm harm reduction or harm minimization projects, including self-defense training, 
street and workplace organizing, credit unions, and the like, which, as she says, are beginning to have a positive effect on the ability of sex workers to take better care of themselves and to get help if they have problems. She also discusses important programs of harm reduction for drug users when she discusses the higher use of uses of certain drugs within communities of sex workers. She also talks about, as long as sex work is a crime, the ability of such programs to increase the safety of sex work will be constrained. She emphasizes that it is important to recognize that the health-related problems of sex work, that they're not caused by questions of morality, and that they're intensified by criminalization and widespread public antipathy to sex work. Sex workers have created organizations to work on better working conditions, such as Stella of Montreal. Sex workers have also organized strikes, pickets, and worked to create labor unions. On the syllabus, I include the documentary Live Girls Unite from, from the year 2000. It's a first-person documentary which chronicles the story of a group of peep show dancers and strippers who create the only union of exotic dancers in the United States at that time. Stripper comedian Julia Query starts the film by beginning with her decision to leave graduate school and start stripping and ends the film with the victory of the union. In the transcript, I've included a link to the trailer. In Alaska in the 1990s, there was also the establishment of the Alaska Exotic Dancers Union. This summer, in June 2020, strippers from 30 strip clubs in Portland, Oregon, protested racism in Portland strip clubs. I linked to an article about the protest in the transcripts. So, from the article, more than 100 dancers have issued the following demands to club owners. Require cultural sensitivity training on a regular basis for all club staff, owners, and management. Ensure that black dancers get fair hiring opportunities and desirable shifts. And require owners and require... Um, and require owners and managers to participate in listening sessions with black dancers to learn about their experiences working at Portland clubs. This issue of racism was also apparent in the Live Girls Unite documentary, in which club owners would only schedule one black dancer per time slot at the peep shows in San Francisco. 20 years later, these labor issues continue. If you are interested in the history of the unionization of exotic dancers, in the transcript I have linked to Sarah Chun's 1999 article, for Hastings Women's Law Journal entitled An Uncommon Alliance, Finding Empowerment for Exotic Dancers Through Labor Unions, which is available for free. Over the past years, we have seen quite a bit of discussion about the role of pornography. One of the major topics has been about the role of condoms in porn and the regulation of workplace conditions for performers in the porn industry. In LA County, where a lot of porn is produced, in 2012, Measure B, also known as the County of Los Angeles Safer Sex in the Adult Film Industry Act, was passed. The law requires the use of condoms in all vaginal and anal sex scenes in pornography productions filmed in LA County, California. This measure also requires porn production companies to obtain a health permit prior to production and post the permit in it to notice to performers regarding condom use during production. Many performers of porn were against this measure because they thought that this would drive porn production underground, out of the county, or out of the state when legislators tried to mandate condom usage in all porn produced in California after porn production left LA County. Performers who are tested regularly for HIV worry that mandated condom use would lead to less testing and putting them more at risk if condoms broke. They also worried that porn would still be made without condoms illegally and that would impede their ability to negotiate their contracts make sure that they are paid as agreed upon, and or impede their ability to report abuse. 
Since 1998, Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation helped set up a monitoring system in the pornographic film industry in the United States, and pornographic film actors were required to be tested for HIV every 30 days. Many performers are tested even more regularly. Advocates for mandatory condom usage in porn have ignored the voices and experiences of performers who actually work in the industry. They also claim that since so many young people learn about sex through porn, condom use should be required. However, creating better sex ed programs is a solution. Discussions of porn and sex ed programs can also talk about differences between porn and sex. It's also important to understand there are many types of porn, including feminist porn. Feminist porn creators such as sex educator, performer, author, and producer of feminist porn, Tristan Terramino, defines feminist pornography as porn dedicated to gender equality and social justice. Feminist pornography is porn that is produced in a fair manner, where performers are paid a reasonable salary and treated with care and esteem, their consent, safety, and well-being are vital, and what they bring to the production is appreciated. Feminist porn seeks to challenge ideas about desire, beauty, gratification, and power through unconventional representations, aesthetics, and filmmaking styles. The overall aim of feminist porn is to empower the performers who produce it and the people who view it. A lot of what makes feminist porn feminist has to do with the workplace conditions for performers. Feminist porn seeks to challenge the, stigmatiz- the stigmatization of porn. While not every form of sex work is illegal, sex workers face intense stigmatization. As Compte writes, starting quote, Finally, criminalization maintains prejudices towards sex workers. It forces them to hide and to lie outside of their working premises to avoid many humiliating situations. Humiliating not because offering sexual services is a source of shame, but because normal people, i.e. clients, family, friends, or health professionals, believe that they have every reason to despise these workers more or less openly for the work that the latter are doing. However, according to feminists asking for decriminalization, decriminalizing sex work will not be enough to get rid of stigmatization because social prejudices are persistent. To improve both the life conditions and working conditions of sex workers, it is necessary to educate people to the fact that most sex workers are neither delinquents nor victims as a result of their work activities. Rather, they are people just like everybody else in society. What makes sex work a job different from others is not the fact that it commercially satisfies the sexual needs and desires of paying clients, but the social attitudes that label the sex worker as an irresponsible, deviant, and degraded person is equally necessary to educate clients so that they realize that sex workers do have the same rights to respect and consideration as does any other worker and that any aggressive or criminal behavior will be prosecuted and penalized, end quote. I bring up this quote because it speaks to the topic of education. Mistress Velvet is a dominatrix who educates her clients about black feminist theory. The Chicago-based master's graduate got her start in professional BDSM as a dominatrix, and over time she said she began doing a lot of theorizing about power dynamics of a black woman holding that kind of supremacy over a white cisgender man. She began introducing black feminist theory into her sessions with clients who've told her their relationship in that space has impacted their behavior outside of it. 
She said while reflecting about her role as a dominatrix, starting, quote, I'm now given this platform to make white cis men think about things in certain ways. Just allowing them to be submissive doesn't always allow for the more drastic shift in the framework and thinking that I want. So I have to bring in my girls like Audre Lorde and Patricia Hill Collins and make these men actually read about black feminism. Then it's moving from them simply fetishizing black women to realizing this is a systematic issue I'm contributing to by the virtue of being a white man and being rich, end quote. Other readings or passages that she uses in her sessions come from Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, The Black Body in Ecstasy by Jennifer Nash, The Color of Kink by Arian Cruz, and selections from the anthology This Bridge Called My Back. She says that in terms of unpacking their way of fetishizing black women and stereotypes about black women, I asked them, so this is her quote now, um, I asked them, why do you want to be in my presence? Why do you find me attractive? And sometimes they might say things that then remind me of stereotypes of black women, like a Jezebel or something. So I'll have them read a piece about how what they said is related to this historic phenomenon about thinking about black women. I say, here are the roots. Here's why it's problematic. That way I can say, you can idolize me, but we need to have it to be done in a way that isn't also problematic, end quote. I've linked to the rest of the article and interview in the transcript. Today we have discussed the debate surrounding sex work and brought forward the voices of sex workers. We've looked at the ways that feminists have discussed and debated the topic, while also trying to center the voices of sex workers and look at sex work as a type of labor. Questions of sex work are made more complicated with the use of technology, particularly the invention of sex dolls and sex doll brothels. Sex dolls cannot consent to sex, and the marketing of sex dolls by companies like Aurora Dolls, which claim to provide, quoting here, an exciting new way to achieve your needs without the many restrictions and limitations that a real partner may come with, ending quote. These sex dolls remove consent from the conversation. The topic of sex dolls further complicates these discussions, maybe part of the next era of feminist debate. The next lecture for this course will be on the topic of popular culture, beauty, sports, and representation. Have a good day. All the video songs, images, and graphics used in podcasts and transcript belong to their respective owners, and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bell sound is schoolbell.wave from 13F Panska, Transco, Michaela, and the closing bell is from Inspector J's bell counter, a.wave of freesound.org. Fair dealing is an exception in Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permitted, unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandated purposes. In Canada, these purposes include research, private study, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news reporting. For research and private study, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required for criticism, review, and news reporting. The source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an educational podcast that is advertisement free.